Hey everybody, you're listening to Raw with Marty Gallagher, J.P. Bryce, and Jim Steele, brought to you by Iron Company. Today we're diving into Forrest Gump of Strength, Part 6. Oh my God, six. With with any luck, we're going to try to wrap it up today. <laughs> T- to be honest, we could do you know fifty parts of these things and not be done, but uh, we got to wrap it up at some point. So we're going to talk Indeed. about some good stuff. Marty's got some really uh, big things to talk about that uh, he found himself involved in. Uh, world champions, various world champions, and mm-hmm. different things like that. So. Um, We'll kind of just jump in now, Marty. One of the things that uh, you wanted to dive into a little bit, we kind of skimmed over Kurt Kowalski right. um, a, a couple of episodes mm-hmm. ago, but he was one of your. He was like your your Frankenstein, right? That you well, built yeah. and mentored, and Kirk came to us. I, I first came across Kirk when. Um... I met him at Joe Pavanelli's initially, which was way back. He was maybe 16 years old. That was a jam? Uh, Joe's, no, Joe trained in his basement uh, of his house, his tract house in, uh, you know, Bowie. I'm thinking somewhere over there, somewhere in the outburg. Did, did he coach Kirk at his high school also in weightlifting? No. Uh, I had a guy at uh, Anne Arundel who was a big influence also, but go ahead. Yeah, he had a high school coach. He got he did lifting in high school. Uh, uh, Joe would have really picked up right after Kirk got out of school. Got it. And Kirk went to junior college, I think, for a year. Yep, we played against oh, each other. There you go. <laughs> uh, then after Joe, he moved over, moved in with and trained with Marshall Pack. And when Marshall got his built his place in the country. He had a good group of hard, hardcore lifters, and Kirk was there. He was a young guy, and he was basically the weight changer. I mean, he, you know, he would change the weights for the big guys, and and then he he would also lift. And Kirk Kirk was always a cocky guy, a cocky kid, and he kind of reeked of it. You know, he might he tried to hide it a little bit around us, but he. Um, it took a while for his performance to catch up to his ego. Well, he was respectful or not? Oh, to us, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But um, true Muhammad Ali type cockiness, you know, you can throw a blanket over it, but it still kind of comes out, you know. So anyway, we had some hard, hardcore Baltimore guys were training with us, and these guys were, you know, criminals and. So what happened was they were like, you know, we don't know if we want this kid coming around anymore. And so Marshall was sort of the arbitrator. He said, all right, he's a, he's a good kid. I'll tell you what, uh, we'll give him a goal. It was something crazy. Like he had to squat 500 for 10 within 30 days or he was out. So what kind of an increase was that going to be from where he was at currently? I can't remember, but I mean, it was 500 for 10 raw, you know, and, and he did it, you know, so it was just like, and, and he hung and then we kind of, uh, everyone kind of drifted apart, but when Chalet's open, Kirk was there, but he was sort of a junior guy. He was lifting in the ADFPA, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which was the American Drug Free Powerlifting Association, which had just kind of come into existence. And that was considered kind of the minor leagues. 
judging was a little looser. They didn't have the best lifters, uh, but you know, it was a good, good place to start. So, so Kirk got involved with those guys and did quite well. Um, how, he Marty, to, yeah. sorry, how old is he at that point? Oh, he's a, he's a young boy. He's 18, maybe about 18. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Young, young guy, right. Just out of high school, just out of junior college. In, in you know, bottom 18, heavy, 19, right? That, that was one of your things. He was bottom heavy. Well, when I, when I first met him, I was working with a guy named Elliot Smith, who was a monster. This guy, uh, Tony Fitton, the, the famous, infamous British drug coach. Uh, um, Allegedly. Allegedly. Uh, Tony, I got Tony to look at Elliot Smith, and he said, said this kid looks better than Kaz when I first wow. saw Whoa. him. Oh, yeah. This guy was a monster. So I was going to coach Elliot, but Elliot, um, <clears throat> he had some uh, life issues. He he didn't want to continue. So at that point, Kirk approached me and said, hey, would you work with me? And if Elliot had stayed with me, I wouldn't work with Kirk, or I would have worked with Kirk. But you can't, when you're working at a high level, you can't work with a bunch of people. Yeah. Right. And I was working with Mark. Mark was expecting me, you know, I was going to work with him. And I was, I can't remember if I was working with Ed at that point, but I was doing some phone conversing. So anyway, so Kirk, time came available and I got involved with Kirk, but, but man, he had a lot of undoing. Right. Yeah. Structurally, he was a bottom heavy guy. He had wide hips, uh, big legs, narrow shoulders. Um, and, at, you know, he had a, a good but high squat. Obviously, he was built to squat. Um, his bench was good. His deadlift was okay. Right? Was he conventional then? Because I remember... Uh, conventional what? Deadlift? Yeah, because I remember one video. Yeah, I, I never seen him sumo. I think he was always conventional, yeah. He said he well, yeah, well he, his, his legs are so <laughs> big. It looks kind of like a semi-sumo anyway, right? He did, like junior nationals or something I, I don't know if you were training but he did sumo and then he said he i think his legs got too big after that <laughs> yeah, i never seen i never seen him do a I sumo think, you know, it's, had, in, uh, it's in Kirk, no, whatever. he never did sumo well we oh we, i'm gonna bet jp i will bet how much right. you want to bet we we interviewed him he said i wouldn't he said he i, said, I couldn't it. i couldn't do sumo i would have got my All ass right, beat it, he said from, from cadet to captain it's in there <clears throat> is it blue singlet blue singlet Go ahead. All right, we'll have to check that out. Well, Marty, anyway, Marty, had uh, he, he had any? Had he any coach? Had had sorry? Had he had any coaching up to this point? Yeah, yeah, he had good coaching. Joe Pavanelli was a good coach. Marshall was a good coach. Uh, yeah, no, no, okay. he, he had he had good coachings, but he was just wild. So, he, so his form he was, was there. His the structure. No, was no, there. no, 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 no. Let me just get ten words in a row, and I'll let you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's very, very, very simple. He was wild. His personality was wild. He was wild. Everything about him was wild, which I prefer. Yeah, I'd rather I'd rather reel in a wild guy right. than try to continually prod some, yeah. you know, some guy who really is not into it. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, you wouldn't even waste your time with him. No, no. I mean, he was he was wild. I like that. So we had to dial him back. Okay, his squats were like his walkouts were scary. He'd break that bar to the back, whoa, and he'd come backwards, and his spotters are going backwards and forwards until he finally 
stepped up and then every every time he squatted he did a different depth and but you know a lot of yelling yeah you know a lot of that stuff you know a lot of theatrics he really back was always then, huh? wow. well yeah from That's the time perfect. he was born <laughs> yeah. some some athletes are they thrive on an audience they get big with an audience kirk was one of those people and the audience could be your training partners right if he respected you yeah or even if he didn't respect you you know <clears throat> uh it you know but people make a guy like kirk the more the more people he draws on that energy they draw on it and it's cool to see it's i, mean, I guess it's charisma right yeah. Uh, Sean Scully, who's seen everybody lift, he said yeah, Kirk was the most charismatic power lifter he'd ever seen. He was he was incredible, but he had to be dialed back. He had to be reeled in. It took us three years to get his squats down to legal depth. Right? He bombed out of his first USPF Nationals. That was embarrassing. And the second one, I can't remember. Did he bomb out of that one? One of them. One of them, one of them, yeah, he, I might have bombed out of two. I think we might have bombed out of the first two. And the second one, his then girlfriend, Mary Beth, called me frantically saying, you have to help me. He's going to commit murder. <laughs> so this was after the, he had bombed out. He was up in the hotel room. So he comes storming out. He'd wrecked the hotel room. And he was going to go down and murder a referee. Oh, my murder God. the head referee. He's going to kill him. He said, we're, he, said, I, he said, I said, how are you going to do it? He said, I don't know. I'll strangle him. I said, well, I said, I'll tell you what. If we go have a couple of drinks at the bar first, I'll help you. We'll push the squat rack over on him. He goes, oh. <laughs> he goes, well, that's a good idea. Placating him. <laughs> you so were just trying to get him over there and calm him down a little bit and talk some sense into him. Once, once we got to the bar, two drinks t- turned into 22. 20, yeah. Right. No problem. And then it was all over. But And yeah. then he came back. Now, Kirk, Kirk got slapped around, and then when he did get his squats in, he was placing like third, right? He took a big leap up, upward. He won, I think we won, we won our first nationals in 1990. He won as a super heavyweight. Now, the story behind that is we came ready to compete in the 275-pound class at the 1990 nationals. But when we got there, we found out that the defending national champion, Mike Hall, super heavyweight national champion, was injured. So Mike wasn't going to lift. Well, uh, Mike was like so domineering. There weren't a lot of other super heavies. Most guys had gone down to 275 to avoid Mike because, Mike, you couldn't beat him right at super heavy. Uh, Mike was 400 pounds, beautiful 900 40 pound squat, 600 pound bench, 840 deadlift, right? He never won the worlds, but he always placed second. Huh. He couldn't, he couldn't beat uh, Lars Noren, but Mike was a hundred percent drug free guy. And so he had that disadvantage, but he was huge <laughs> and athletic. Well, anyway, Mike got injured. So we're looking around and the defending champion at 275 is a guy named Calvin Smith. And he was pretty tough, right? So I said, Kirk, I said, Kirk, why don't we go up to Supers? I said, they know Calvin Smith's in Supers. Kirk was like, you're right. So right there, that that day, we and he just put the feedback on. And I think he weighed in at like a 
three or something. Mm. And he won. It worked. Right? 283 so, or 5'7". Yeah. What was Dan- that? Dan- I can't remember. It wasn't anything fabulous. It was okay. But he won a na- But the point is, is he won a national championships at Super. Then at the Worlds, he and Calvin Smith, Calvin won at 275, they switched weight classes. Calvin was having a hard time getting down to 275. Kirk was really a 275. So Kirk said, why don't we switch? So Kirk at the Worlds lifted at 75. Calvin lifted as a super. Calvin did terrible. Kirk came within five pounds of winning the world championships. He lost to Vilmi from Finland by 2.5 kilos. Now, I kicked my own ass because had I been there, and where was the competition held? can't remember. Overseas in Europe somewhere. Had I been there, I certainly would have been worth 2.5 kilos. Right. That's what he lost by. So the next year, I went, 1992. And guess what? He won. He crushed. Still at Super Heavy? No, 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 no. Now he's, he's taken second. In his first world championships at 275. Got it, got it. Now he's uh, 275. He wins in 1992. That starts a six-year run where he won six in a row, six world championships in a row. Won seven national championships in three different weight classes. He won not only at 275 and super, he also won a national championship at 242. I thought it. I thought he looked his best in his life when he lifted and won the national at 242. He looked incredible. Yeah, when he did the 914. Yeah. How did his training, or did you change any of his training as the years went on from the time he was 19? No, not not too much. We were always once-a-week guys. I mean, we, we never squatted more than once a week. We never deadlifted more than once a week. I don't know anybody who benched more than once a week. But he was still doing the, the same split that he did when he won the Worlds. And didn't you, you added in the grip shrugs? Well, he did. He got back from Ed Cohn. Okay. And something else. He, you know, he inclines. He put that in on his own. Right. He periodically threw, I mean, one, I don't know, one time we tried leg presses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that was horrible. What a pain in the ass that must have been. Oh, that was horrible. I mean, Bob Myers <laughs> and I are, it, we were the ones who had to load and unload the hundreds. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It ruined our deadlift workout. Then, the you know, two days later, it was like, God damn, man, we're not, we can't unload and un, excuse me, beep, we can't load and unload eleven hundreds on each side. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. Productive. Work. So, you know, but, but and, he didn't. And he tired of it anyway. He didn't get anything out of it. He quit him. We only did it like three times. So really, he built his leg size and strength purely on squats, wow. right? That's yep. about all he did. And he, and he built his bench on bench, and he built his deadlift on deadlift. Yeah. He did some incline. He did a little bit of arm work. He didn't do any yeah. leg extensions or anything. No. I mean, and, uh, and he just, would tell you that he, at different times he might have tried them, but he never, it was while, never yeah. anything consistent. The inclines, he was consistent with the inclines. He was consistent with his arm work. Other than that, no. You know, I mean, we're not doing leg curls. We're not doing calf raises. You know, I often, uh, and I've told him this, I, I compare him to a, a double-muscled beef cow. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You know those big bulls I, that are like, yeah, 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 they've yeah, got some genetic thing where they they have double the, the muscle mass? That's him. Yeah. 
He just I builds thought of him muscle. As a, I always thought of him as a rhino. He could pass for a rhino too. But yeah, I mean, that's what I you were saying, I mean, he, he did very little arms and he would just walk over after a workout and grab the hundred uh, pound yeah. dumbbells and just, you know, bust out reps of, of hundred yeah. pounds yeah. on the, on the bicep curls. You know, yeah, carry on, carry on a conversation. Hey, what's going on? Yeah, it's you not know? anything he built up to. You know, he, doing... won. he would he would win curl competitions where you have to put your back up against the wall, and he'd like do two thirty or something without yeah. training for it. And he never trained for that. That's, that's no, what I mean. No, no. He, had, well, he so... would do that arm day on Tuesdays when he he felt like he needed a little extra <laughs> arm size. I'd go in there and he'd be doing. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about strict curls with the 85s and yeah but, but, but he only do three sets of biceps yeah but just, he was like you know and, and it was sort of like everything else the real uh technician yeah. all that yeah. stuff technician. our whole strategy was how do we make a lift more difficult yeah mm-hmm. everybody else's was how do we make it easier you know and it was like no take your gear off use full range of motion do pauses and dead stops and you know slow negatives and all these things that make it pause you know make it more difficult you never see that in the gym no of course not because everybody wants to the ego inflator is to bounce reps and you know shorten rep strokes and what else jim all i ever see is partial reps screaming guys in there this morning he's leg pressing he's going down two inches he's singing He's yep. singing at the top of his lungs, and then he slams it. it down. And oh, I'm going, great. man, get me out of here, man. What state is that? What state? <laughs> it's California, and guess what? I'm getting out. So you won't see that in Texas. No. <laughs> hope I hope not. Otherwise, I'm going to Pennsylvania yeah, yeah, yeah. into your garage. There's a, some good gyms in Texas, man. Yeah, better. That's right. So anyway, all right. So all right. Now look, I had uh, you know in uh, Kirk was a work in progress, but he was the perfect student because he had the situation. He had a good job as a union printer back in the days when they had printers. Right. And, and he worked hard, but, uh, I forget his, I think he was, he worked four and a half days and then he was off all day, Sunday and Monday. Monday was the main day. That's squat day. Monday was always squat day and squat is everything. Um, as the squat goes, your lifting goes, assuming that your squats are legal and deep and, you know, all that, all that stuff. And then a couple of days later, he'd bench, no problem, you know, maybe do some inclines. And a couple of days later, he'd deadlift. But and talk about I, that, was, that was it. I mean, what else is there to do? Talk about the pinnacle, though, the, the world record squat that he does, the thousand and three pounds. Yeah, actually, that was a little bit of an anticlimactic thing. He'd done a thousand and two in training in the famous tape. He'd done eight hundred for five. Uh, what we when he did the thousand at the USPF Nationals. What year was that, Jim? That was ninety five, uh, wasn't it? Ninety five. Okay. So when we did that, what we we actually were took. I can't remember. I think it was a ten thirty six, maybe a ten twenty twenty eight third attempt. But what we, we didn't count on the emotional yeah. drain of yeah. being the, doing the thousand. Yeah. They went crazy. The crowd went crazy. Everybody went crazy. He, you know, he went crazy. I mean, it was a, it was a big moment. It was a, you know, Roger Maris hitting the 60th home run. He should have just walked off. Exactly. So, so, but, 
but that wasn't the world. Back, back when we were planning it, well, we'd done a thousand for two in training. Yeah, but, check out YouTube. Uh, it's on there. What are we going to do? We're we going to do a thousand for one. No, we're going to. I mean, if you do a thousand for two, what are you going? What's going to be your third? Well, if I'm thinking, you know, ten thirty. No, that was, good, that was a good guess, man. That was right? a good guess, yeah. But again, what we didn't count on is the emotional. After the thousand, it was just we were over and done. But you know, he was like, "No, no, let's do it." But Dude, it, if you watch the film, strange. if you watch the film on that, that bar super whippy. Oh yeah. I mean, at time, I mean, like he was like stepping back into a minefield, man. And and the time he got that bar set, man, that must have taken a lot out just just that. And mind you, that's full no walkout. That's no mono lift. That's full no. walkout everything. And the same bar was used in the in the, in the squat, the bench, the dead. They take the the squat bar and put it on the bench rack, and then they put it on the floor. There was no different bars for each lift. Yeah. Right. There were no whippy deadlift bars, you know. There were, you know, there were no extra thickness squat bars. We used the same bar, right. everybody, and it made it uniform and it made it difficult. And that's what it's about: making it difficult. Uh-huh. So anyway, so yeah, that was Kirk's peak year. And again, I think the biggest thing about his career was when he had that period where he went down to forty-two and he hardened up. Yeah. Then, then when he went back up to 75, that's when he achieved his true greatness because he maintained that hard quality that he'd attained at 42, that he, yeah, that he'd attained at 42. And again, he'd fought at 914 at 242. That was John Cook's record, right? Oh, he crushed the record by 40 pounds. The record before had been 871. Here comes Kirk. Oh, let me just stomp the hell out of that. Right. Yeah. No problem. And again, when he went back up, that's that. That's that's when he got great. You now, know what's funny? His deadlift was strong at two forty two, and yeah, it, was. it was like what seven seventy one or something at two forty two. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Seven seventy seven. You know, in the meet at two seventy five. You know why, Jimmy? Why is that? Because at the competition where he weighed two forty two. And we deadlifted 777. That was the raw meat. That was actually a, a comeback meat. He was 40 years old when he did that. He'd been out of the game for 10 oh, years. Oh, the AAU one. Yeah, no, it wasn't an AAU. It was some oh. other West Coast Federation. It was the one that he came back and he squatted, yeah, 820, he, he squatted 826. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's the one. And he deadlifted 777, more than he'd pulled at 275. Mm. But you know why? Mm. He didn't have to squat 1,000 first. <laughs> yeah, really. He only had to squat 826. It was a walk in the park compared to having a – because before you get to do 1,000 in the warm-up room, oh, you got to do what? you got to do uh, seven, seven, four, No, no. you got to do 745, 835, 925. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, then your second attempt, 960. I mean, there's a lot of heavy squatting that goes on before you get to do the 1,000. Yeah. A lot of pounders, a lot of reps. And then you got a deadlift. That was what always destroyed his deadlift. He deadlifted 825 in training. Mm-hmm. He never deadlifted more than 771 in the meet because the squat crushed his deadlift. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Now, again, that meat that he did only had, only had to do 826. He was like, wow, this is easy. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. So, again, that, that was the deal with that. Um, Kirk, we tried to talk him out of retiring. I think this is a good story, too. This is a Forrest Gump moment. <clears throat> so he's a seven-time national champion, six-time world champion, and he's bored. And he goes, you know what? I, oh, and at the time, there was a lawsuit on, on the USPF. So no competition could be held in America. All international competitions, you had to travel to Europe or Asia. Yeah. So now it's time for him to get started for getting revved up to win world champion national championship number eight world championship number seven and he goes i don't want to do it i quit and i go well, you can't quit america depends on you and he goes why do i want to do that and he licks a finger and he puts on an imaginary chalkboard and he goes so i can do this and he puts a another mark down right like so i can do number eight he said it doesn't mean anything to me anymore like, oh no so I said, all right, look, and Bob, Bob Myers is with me, and we're like trying to talk him out of it. I said, I said, how about this? How about if you win the world championships and you wear no gear and they wear gear, right? Because it was a gear right, yeah. championship. I said, well, you know, wait, that would be cool, right? And he goes, yeah, I can do that, but I don't feel like it. And I'm like, okay, I got to Sorry. So I, then I had the best one. This is my. This, this was incredible. I said, "Why don't you win the world championships without training for it? You would be the first athlete in history to win a world championships without doing any training." He said, "What?" He said, "I said, all right." I said, "I said with no training, Kirk, could you squat eight and a quarter?" And he goes, "Well, yeah, of course." I said, "Well, with no, I said with no training, could you bench five hundred?" He goes. Well, yeah, right? I said, with no training, could you deadlift 750? He said, well, of course. I said, well, you just would be the 275 champion of the world. So why, why don't we just take off the next, okay, just make weight. That's all you got to do. Take off the entire year, go to the beach, whatever. I don't care. And then show up. We show up at the nationals. We got to win the nationals. No problem, because that's even less, Right. And then we go to the Worlds, and you become the first athlete in history to win a world championship without training for it. I, I thought it was genius. And he didn't go for it. Yeah. So that was the end of Kirk's career. That was it. It was it a ended, good one. It ended with a whimper, not a bang. How old was he at that point? I don't know. I can't remember. He was young. He could have he won five more. He was there for his. He just got bored with it. It was like, you know, I've done it six times in a row. I, I know the deal. Is he? I right? haven't talked to him about this, but is he glad he retired when he did, or does he regret it? I'm sure what? not. I'm sure not now because he could have won five more. Yeah. But, you know, you know, we don't get we don't get to go back in time. Yeah. Right? Well, let's talk about um... – one of so the that's Kirk, right? So, right. So, that's that, 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 that's Kirk. So that's Kirk. I, I mean, other, yeah, yeah, I got other things going on at the same time, right? Well, let's talk Huge. about. Well, let this, me let me just say this real quick before yeah. before you jump in. At the at the end of the eighties, I was hugely influenced by Kenny Fantano. The time I, the year that I spent up there, yeah. that period where I was only allowed to train once a week, and that was it. Now, at Marx, I've been exposed to minimalism, right? 
I mean, we would train, work up to a single in the squat on Mondays, you know, and the bench on Monday, a single on the Thursday, I work up to a single. You can't get more minimal than that. But that was two separate sessions. Now, down to one session, all out. It, it showed me how little, in terms of, of, of volume, you can do and get results. Uh, at 220, I squatted 660, bench 365, and deadlifted 644. I won the state championships that year with the one once a week tra- uh you know one time a week training i'm not saying that i would want to make a total religion of it but it's certainly a valid it's just, that's what i have the guys doing today these guys that cannot train during the week we have them on this ultra minimalism once a week that was first shown to me by ken with cassidy we train twice a week with with chalet we train twice a week with with Ken, for the first time, we trained once a week and got results. Right? Hello, you guys with me? I put yeah, you yeah. I don't know what that was. <laughs> but but your guy to to your point. I mean, the once a week, your guys that you're training for years, they're consistently making uh, progress, and right. you know, yeah. you stick uh, them yeah. in meets once in a while, and they do they do very well, don't they? You do great. Yeah, everybody does all their training on one day, and yeah. then they. Uh, rest for the entire week i think it might be prophetic i think that jolting the body every two to three days at, uh, ensures that the body at no time is fully rested yeah that's one of your uh, next articles coming up that we're yeah. launching yeah. next week on the central mm-hmm. nervous system yep. Um, yep. And-, and, and this is when i was first exposed to it so it was a very important time right and that bled over when kirk I, Kirk's training was very influenced. I was talking to Ed Cohn oh, a lot. Um, Eddie and I were talking every week, and it was always about training. And I would take what I got from him, and I'd take what I had from Hugh, and we sort of amalgamated it and, and used it on Kirk. He was like our crash Fra- test bummer. Frankenstein, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and, and it worked on him. And again, he had this great situation, and he could he could he could be dedicate his entire life toward this goal. You know, he, he basically did sort of what Yates, what we were talking about last time. Yes. Yates did yes. the bodybuilding. Yes. He was a monk. Yes. He was a monk for 10 yes. years. Yes. Yes. Because if you want to win a world championship and be a hero, I think that's what you got to do. Yep. And I don't think, you, I don't think you achieve that casually. Everything else be damned because I got a goal. Yeah. And, he had a chance at doing it. He, yeah. did a lot, he did a lot of work. He again, uh, his lower body. Yeah, he was good in the lower body, but man, he was he had a lot of work to do up top. I, okay, he's going to hate if I say this, but for a long time, the guys called him Howard the Duck. Okay, he was so <laughs> bottom heavy, allegedly. Right. Why well, uh, you got to see him on Sunday? Duck. We had a guy, yeah, but he doesn't look like that anymore. But there was a time when a guy, a guy came up to me in a power conference. He said, you know, he said, uh, Kirk looks like a minotaur. He looks like a guy riding on top of an animal. <laughs> oh, my God. Say what, man? His upper body got big, though. That's funny. What I mean, yeah. Well, you know what? You know how it got big? He got a 600-pound bench. That's how it yeah. got big. Yeah. You know how he, how he brought his back up? He got an 825 deadlift. That's how he brought his back up. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right? And, and it's that simple. Uh, the muscle was a direct. It, it was a, the muscle was an unintended consequence of the strength. Yeah, there's nobody with a small back deadlifting 800 pounds. Let me tell you. No, that. no, there's nobody. Be- well, there might be. I can think of one guy. But yeah, this, yeah. How many guys have bench 500 legitimately? I mean, they're rocked out. Yeah. You have to be. You have to have that kind of muscular firepower. Yeah. It happens at the same time. You get stronger, you're going to get bigger. Now, I don't want to get too far afield. Uh, so at the same time that I'm working with Kirk uh, on a, a local level, I'm still working with Mark. Uh, at a national level, I'm getting sucked in. I'm drafted to work with the Black's Gym. And yeah. so, so we go on a rampage. We have to beat the the combined United States Armed Forces team, which has been like five times national team champions. John Black says, we're going to put together a team. And we're going to beat them. So it was myself and Bob Fortenbaugh. We were the actual coaches. John was um, like the, uh, the facilitator, right? The ringmaster. He'd make the hotel reservations. He'd get the, you know, we'd say, you know, who do we want? And we'd draft players and stuff. So um, that catapulted me up to where I was working with the, the best lifters in the world in a competition setting uh, and, you know, competition coaching, you know, Lamar Gant, Ed Cohn, Doug Furness, or, you know, Dave Jacoby at the Nationals at the Worlds. And what an experience, what a Forrest Gump experience that is. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. Can we can we transition into Ed Cohn because that's a true Forrest Gump. The way you've told me the story, and I want you to set it up. Um, how did how did he actually end up recruiting you to competition coach? To set that moment up. You guys were Doug, Doug uh, Furness was his competition coach, and Doug couldn't make it for a variety of reasons. And, yeah. and Ed, we knew Ed, and we were very friendly with Ed. Mm-hmm. Let me see. That was. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I was in Dayton. Uh, this was at one of the Grand Larry Pacifico events where we were only one federation. All the best people lifted in one meet, and uh, you know he met me in the street and he said, "Hey, listen, you know Doug can't make it. Could you help me tomorrow?" I was like, "Go, oh, yeah, sure, whatever." And yeah. I had I had watched him for years lifting. I'd watch him from the time he was a one eighty one setting world records and then he moved up to 198 and was setting world records now he was at 220 and you know outlifting the guys three weight classes above him and he walks up to me and he says hey you know i need you to handle me and i did and it was successful and we did he'd have to help me uh i think we well i can tell you this for sure that his two best meets of all time the greatest to me, the greatest powerlifting event in history, the greatest powerlifting feat in history, was when he totaled 2,400, weighing 219. With a deadlift of? Well, wait. First, with a 963 squat. Amazing. A 550 bench. No Perfect. shirt. No shirt. Right? And a 901 deadlift. That's one, man. Total, total of 2,400. Guess who his coach was? Me. And you're in that picture. If you see that famous deadlifting picture of him, you're you're yeah. in the back. I'm like Angelo Dundee with yeah, Muhammad the back Ali when he knocks out, you know, Sonny Liston. It's like, whoa! Right? But and the, I'm the, there. the funny thing I I 
I heard you say about this story was though that you guys were crossing the the this in this uh, crosswalk at the same time, and he goes, "Hey Marty, I need you to coach me tomorrow," and you're like, "Oh yeah, okay." Nonchalantly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I mean, but yeah, okay. What a okay, chance meeting, that. though, right? In the middle no, of the street. Uh, if he hadn't grabbed me there, he would have grabbed me somewhere else. It wasn't any chance. It wasn't a casual thing. <laughs> he obviously had me in mind. It wasn't going to be. Know it wasn't going to be somebody, some other dude walking the same direction at that time. He goes, "Hey, Jimmy Joe, can you come on over here? Hey, would you? No, uh-uh. Marty, no, don't, don't go there. Go ahead. Was nine oh one his third? No, it was his second. He pulled 900 for a double in training. Okay. We called for nine. He had pulled 920 in training. We okay. called for 920 in the third. Same thing. We did not anticipate the emotional response yeah. of, at a company pulling 900 and at the same time breaking the 2,400-pound barrier. They went crazy. Were you yeah. picking all his weights? Yes. Yes, that was the most mind-wracking. Wouldn't, wouldn't he say, don't even tell me? Yeah, no, yeah, like 10 minutes, we're warming him up, we're warming him up, and it's like a church. He didn't want a lot of talk and a lot of chatter, but he had a, <laughs> he had a posse of guys from Chicago, man. These guys, I mean, we had like eight guys at your beck and call. I was like a, it's like a NASCAR pit crew chief, right? Yeah. I had these guys, I'd say, all right, uh, next week, you know, uh, you know, and, and so – we had the backstage timing thing down perfectly. Put them on stage at just the right amount of time. And so we're getting them warmed up, and he goes, he comes up to me, and he goes, uh, I want you to pick the weight. I don't want to know. Don't tell me. <laughs> I was like, what? So your, then, your mind was blown he, at that time. Then he wheels and walks away, and I'm like, well, I had a proof. You know, I talked to him. I talked to him every week. I mean, I had a I good, I, good idea, but still, it's like, what the hell? And I forget who was with me. One of his, it might have, I don't, it might have been uh, Tommy Milanovic, right? And he's looking down at me, and he's like, God damn, you know, what do we do? And I, uh, and I think he missed his third. I think nine, the 963 was a second, and I think he tried for more than a third. Uh, the bench, I think we got all three benches, uh, but the deadlift, we got the nine, the 901 and the 2400. After that, it was like everything was like, you know, we were shot. We were just emotionally so drained. But, Marty, right? you had never trained with Ed or anything before. You'd never coached him before, right? So you didn't have oh, a good understanding. Had, no, no, I had plenty of – no, I had tons of understanding. You were talking about of what his weights oh, were going to be? Yeah, I talked to him every week, man. I mean, we talked okay. – yes. No, no, it wasn't going to be – no, I was completely in the loop. I was totally attuned. Hey, you know. uh, I quizzed the guy. I quizzed the guy, uh, you, like a Guantanamo interrogator. I wanted to know everything about what he did, how he trained, what his techniques were in this. Well, on that, well, I wrote the damn book on him. Right? Excuse me. Beep. Literally. Hey, listen. I literally wrote the book on Ed Cohn. JP. Yeah. He wrapped himself. If you know, like when you're in a yeah. meet, you talk about something that takes a lot out of you, wrapping somebody's knees. He wrapped himself. He had those gold line marathons. Yep. And, I mean, he's not even, like, it's not even that tight, man. No. I'm telling you. You no. can't even make it that tight when it's when you're wrapping yourself. But, you know, and, and that's one of the most exhausting things. Like more, you know, the equipment becomes more exhausting than lifting. But that's what's amazing. And you see him, and he's not, you know, he's not even demonstrative. He's just, like, wrapping his knees and walk. He didn't want all that, did he, Marty? He didn't no. want all that fanfare and stuff. No, everything was, was uh, low-key fury. Midwestern. 
Right. If you if you were up close on top of them, there's like a ferocity. I always talk about there was a heat that would come yeah. off his body. Okay. Like it's like weird. It was like when he was when he was in the the zone, it literally because you get up close to him to to like pull his belt or adjust his strap or something. They're like, wow, that's yeah. that, that's something. Uh, but uh, he was uh, unique. Again, I compare him to like a Jim Brown or a Wilt Chamberlain or a. You know, uh, uh, just a unique individual. And also, Ed was not a genetic freak. He really wasn't. He was kind of a, he was not any kind of a star athlete. He was kind of a, well, he was literally a 98-pound guy in high school. Mm. But structurally, he was he was built for it. He, he, he built himself up. And, you know, so. Marty. So I worked with Ed for that. Also, I worked with Ed when, later when he totaled the, uh, beat the all-time total record. Now, this was in the 90s, though. This is a little later. Uh, this he uh, the all time total record I think was twenty four forty, and Ed went to one of the first. What was the professional WPM? Yeah, yeah, I went to the first one of those, and wow, that, this was crazy. I arrived at the last minute. I had a, a late late flight, and I arrived, and they had they were actually warming up, and I walked in. And Cone's warming up, and there's Kaz leaning up against the door. And Cone was on fire. And it was just like Kaz being there took his game to the next level. Mm. And that's when he did the whatever, whatever the biggest squat he ever did was, whatever, thousand and whatever, seven or whatever it was. And he just he just manhandled it. I mean, he just, and as I walked back to the back, back room, Kaz was lit up. I said, how do you like that? And he said, he said, did you see how low we took it? Did you see how low we took it? And, uh, man, you know, Ed was just, that was, that was incredible. But having said that, I think there were two different Eds. And when he hurt himself and was unable to use the sumo deadlift anymore. Yeah. That was sort of like Ed 2.0. And I had thought that had he been able to, you know, retain his sumo style and not get injured, yeah, he probably would have pulled nine fifty. What was it? Is that doctor? What he hurt? Some crazy wasn't powerlifting, like some crazy thing, you know. And uh, yeah, it was a, a abductor or something. He couldn't yeah. couldn't sumo. That was it. He still was strong though in that deadlift, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but he again he he would get I think he got up to eight ninety three at two forty two, but that's different than nine hundred at two nineteen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, what if he'd been able to sumo and pushed his weight up to two forty two? Well, I say nine fifty. Right. And it was like a hybrid. It was perfect for him that sumo man. It wasn't too wide. It was. We called it gorilla sumo. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. We looked, like, we looked like a silverback, uh, you know, tensed up and ready to, you know, spring at a zoo cage. So Rob Wagner uh, went yeah. out to Chicago for something for, uh, I think it was Deep Esquale had an event. And Ed Cohn said, oh, you know, come on over and I'm, I'm going to train. So he goes in, I think he put on, like, started with, he was on standing on a 100-pound plate. Yeah. And he ended up yeah. pulling no belt. 700 for five. Yep. He took off two plates on each side, bent rode it for eight to 10. Yep. That was it. <laughs> that was mm. it. And, and Wagner took pictures of it. He said it was the most amazing thing he's ever seen, man. 
No, that, that's you know. the way. That's the kind of minimalistic stuff. Yeah. And again, again, how can you make it harder? Well, stand on a stand on a, a hundred pound plate. No belt. Uh, and he would yeah. Where in the off season he would wear no gear. Yeah. And he, because only logical, he said that way. When you put it back on, it meant something. No question. Yeah. It made a big. So <laughs> simple. Big so why aren't we doing that today? I don't know, but that was, we all did that. We all did it. Yeah, yeah. That was so, the thing. You have equipment as you go, but you don't put it on until you have to have it. And in the deep off season, you got as strong as you possibly could, as raw as you possibly could, using the most extreme range of motion you possibly could. Yeah. Right. What do you and guys think? <clears throat> what do you guys think made him the best uh, powerlifter in the world? I mean, did he train harder? Did he train smarter? What was it? Because, Marty, you already commented on his genetics. He probably didn't have the best genetics for this, so he probably had to compensate there. No, he obviously had good genetics for it, but you they weren't obvious. I mean, you look yeah. at the guy, just a, a guy. He fa- he found and honed his genetics. I, I don't know, man. It's just, himself... it's just a combination of everything. You know, it's a combination of environment, of training. His training was... Um, very similar to what we were doing. That's part of the reason, part of the attraction. The, the training that he came to on his own in Chicago was the training that, very similar to the training that Dennis Wright had taught Doug Furness in Oklahoma, which was very similar to the training that Hugh Cassidy had taught to me in Maryland. And so when we compared notes, it was like, oh, we're all kind of doing the same thing. And Ed and Doug developed a very specific, I mean, I could tell you right now what their bench strategy was. You work up to a top set, depending on where you are in your periodized cycle. You could be at eight, a five, a three, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you back off, you do two sets of wide, paused. Then you do two sets of narrow, touch and go. And that's the classic cone bench strategy boom boom and he said i got the pause wide grip from doug right Mm -hmm. so i mean it was a hybrid and then so i took that and you know cassidy's basically cut cassidy's volume in half i cut what hugh did in half and gave that to kirk and added you know we put in some ed and you know some dog and you know there you go and you know marinated for five years and that's what you got right and kirk was kirk was all about working his weak points you know there's a lot of guys shy away from working your weak points yeah he was like oh now let's go no he was good man he was good on that you know so he brought his upper body he brought his back up right and that made the difference. Well, you know, taking up to see Ken Fantano. Ken Fantano revolutionized his bench. Listen, we need to spin off into some other stuff. We're spending an entire episode on Kirk, and there was so much other stuff going on. Let's talk about kettlebells real quick. Now, uh, that recent... was a little later, actually. That that happened a little later. All right, you want to but... fill in with something else? Yeah, I mean, well, well, at the same well, time, see, go ahead. Is that Jim? Where, where are you in, in your life at this time, in your athletic life? Like, well, are you- that's, that's what I was going to spin to because, you know, I'm, uh, uh, you know, locally, I'm working with, you know, national and world level Mark Chalet, 
national level Kirk Kowalski, national and world level Don Mills, uh, re, you know, right in my neighborhood. Nationally, I'm working with blacks, right? Yeah. So then, in, in uh, myself, in 1990, I turned 40, and I broke my leg in 19, uh, yeah, 1983. Mm-hmm. So it's been seven years, and I didn't compete in 1990, but I started looking at what the, you know, the the best masters lifters were doing, and I said, you know, I'm sure I might be. I might be competitive. So the following year, I, I trained for a year and I decided to start competing again. But I wanted to compete lighter. Yeah. So I didn't have to handle the big weight. I knew that I had a, I had a uh, plate with pins in my left lower leg. Jeez. You know, I knew, I knew that the heavy poundage was, and they, they told me, they said, you know, this thing can only take so much stress. You pop those rivets out and, you know, we got to, cut you back open so that was always in the back of my head so i jumped back in at 220 and i went to the nationals and i won and i went to the worlds in australia and i won so now there's a there's a force gump moment for you now i'm the ipf world masters champion okay and i go on to win five maybe six six five or six i can't remember national masters champions damn i win as a 98 a 220 and a 242 now is that you start you when you came back were you doing 198 or were you 242 no i started as 220 okay then i dropped down to 98 i pulled 633 at 98 damn how did you drop down was it hard for you to drop down well yeah yeah it was horrible (laughs) <laughs> you know what? Yeah. nobody says that that's the truth yeah, it was great it was and not and and it was the most satisfying thing whatever i ate whatever the first thing it was that i was allowed to eat probably yeah. some salty pizza yes because you want to eat salt and then you want to drink liquid and you want to swell because back in those days you only had two hours from way into when you lifted right right I squatted 600 at 98. My buddy Ian Burgess said, that was the most difficult lift I've ever seen in my 27 <laughs> I said, it was pure embarrassment even, Ian. I had to squat. And I'm geared, right? But I'm, five, I'm 5'10". I'm lifting 198. I've got like a 31-inch waist, right? And it, it just looked, I'm like six inches above every other guy in my class. And you still had the plate in your leg? Yeah, 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 yeah. But that, 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 I'm only squatting 600. That's nothing, right? But then, but but I wanted I, I wanted to do a curve, right? I was just kind of you know I could have tightened up at 220, so I said go down to 98, then go back up to 220, right? Do a curve, mm-hmm. right? Lean out, then go back up. You know, you'd be rocked out. Well, what happened was that when we got to Montreal, there was a completely drugged out Russian there. Mm-hmm. And he was squatting 775, benching 5, I don't know, 40, and deadlifting 775. What they were doing is the Russians were, they had a one in three. If you finished in the top three, you had a one in three chance of being caught. So they're saying, well, we're going to roll the dice. (laughs) And uh, so I looked at that and said, you know what? 
I just dipped in 42. So I just, I went up and I got second. Right. And it was just a good, good strategic move. I can't remember. I think I squatted that uh, 722. You know, I lifted, I lifted okay. Uh, and then when I went to Slovakia, I started training with Kirk and Larry Chris and a bunch of hardcore guys again. So it was like, all right, well, let me see if I can squat 800 again. Right. So I started putting body weight back on and I got up to 245 and I, in training, I squatted 800 and I know it was legal because Kirk called me up mm-hmm. and we got to Slovakia. That was a nightmare. But at the time, the thinking was, oh, you needed to get there seven to 10 days in advance to adjust yeah. to, the, to the time. Yeah. Well, this is like the biggest white ghetto in the world. Right. I mean, it was horrible. There was nothing. There was nothing to do, nowhere to go. The place had been strip mined. You know, the people were, everyone was in horrible moods because they had to, they had to live there. Right. Oh, and so the bar would open at 10 o'clock in the morning. We see all these people like, like bum rush the bar and we're like, and they're all waving money and getting vodka shots at 10 o'clock. What is wrong with these people? What else I got to live for? Well, by the fifth day, we were bum rushing the bar at 10 o'clock in the morning getting vodka shot. And that's a true damn story. And that was, <laughs> I lost 12 pounds. What? Yeah. No food. There was no food. They had, they would have a mystery meat with cabbage and potatoes. Right. Special. It's cheap. Now, no, the, the, they gouged you on the food. But the alcohol was like 15 cents for the best beer you ever had in your life. Oh, man. But it was like 11% by yes. volume. Yes. Uh, it, was, it, it was horrible. The smartest guy on the entire team <clears throat> flew in the day of, he lifted, uh, what was his name? Oh, it's terrible. I can't. George, um, what was George's last name? Anyway. George flew in. We're all there degrading the entire week, getting worse and worse and worse. Oh, and then the, the, we, had the, we stayed in this crummy hotel. You had uh, one, one bathroom for every four I bet it was room, small. rooms. And we were the luxury floor because we were the Americans. Everyone else, it was one bathroom per floor. And they had like 15 rooms per floor. The tennis court next door was where Martina Navratilova learned to play tennis. Wow. <laughs> cool. Crazy. So anyway, so it was terrible meet. I got the third. Uh, and at that point, I just said, you know, and, and I forget where the next year was going to be in, I don't know, Iceland or Thailand or something. I said, you know, and Kirk quit. So I just said, you know, enough. I, I don't want to travel anymore. Yeah. I that was travel and lift oh, it was horrible and you guys i mean you had to go all over the world and, and the best facilities were right here and you couldn't do it because that lawsuit yeah yeah uh for real and and yeah. the nationals uh, then all of a sudden the schism started coming in it started mm-hmm. you know blowing apart so you know when kirk quit it was like you know what that's okay i quit because i had other things going on at the same time you know um uh 
my my muscle correspondent career is is rolling big all of a sudden muscle and fitness magazine calls me up and says oh you know we you're great you know we read you in powerlifting usa we read you Milo. we want you to come work for us they pay great and they they send me everywhere they send me to the mighty champions they send me to the arnold they send me to the olympia front row seat slovakia though no, no Slovakia, right? And first class, you know, you're you're in suites and and you know you you get a per diem, yeah, man, allowance, they, right? Yeah. Oh my God, you got a press pass, yeah, yeah. Five magazines. You're walking, yeah. you're walking around backstage. Hey, there's Dorian Yates. Hey, there's Lee Priest. Hey, there's you know what I mean. Yeah, and you're yeah. backstage, and you're just yeah, yeah. You're you know you can go anywhere. So. You know, we rolled very heavy with that, and I got to interview all the top bodybuilders in the world. I didn't care so much about their training, but I always judiciously took it down. But their their nutrition, I paid attention to that. They are the best dieters in the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just uh, mathematically, to consistently whittle your body fat down to sub five percent. Yeah. And it's it's uh, it's a widely known strategy and system, right, Jim? Yes, yes, and they developed it. <laughs> you know, they they're uh, on the front of everything, supplements and and nutrition, because they can't screw up, man. They got it. You know, you're going on stage in your speedo, so you you got to do it right. Yep. And, and you have to show up at that. I mean, uh, you look up until the the late '60s. Guys like Bill Pearl were winning Mr. Universe with ten percent body fat percent. Right. right. That man no. never had a that man never had a cut in his thighs at all. Yeah. Right. And it it took a long time. Then they got super skinny with uh, Chris Dickerson and okay. and same uh, and, and you know they got kind of scrawny. I think Dickerson had sixteen and a half inch arms when he won the Olympia. Jim beating Bertel Fox. Oh, I know, man. (laughs) Those judges needed to be changed, right? So anyway, I'm covering this stuff, and I tell these guys in another Forrest Gump moment, and they hire me say, I don't like bodybuilding. I said, it is not me. They said, we don't care. Just give us that great copy. I said, all right. I said, but there's going to – I need some allowances. And they said, oh, sure, no problem. So as long – when Bob Wolf was there, Tom Dieters was the head guy, and Bob Wolf was my direct boss. And as long as Bob was there, it was great. I didn't go to the night shows. I mean, it was fantastic. Now, you was, lived in Maryland, or you were in Pennsylvania at the time? Uh, well, let's see. Where was I? I was back, had been back up to Milford, Connecticut and for a year, and then came back down back in the D.C. area. Okay, and, and so, you, so you were able to work from home, and then you just go to these shows or go to California – to do some oh, of I was busy. Yeah, I was busy, busy, busy. Right at, yeah. at, at so many at so many different levels. So every time you went to a show, you'd have three articles spin off that because you'd have two athletes that you interviewed. Then you have the show coverage. Right. So you know, and every month I had one issue of Muscle and Fitness where I had five articles in one issue. Mm-hmm. Now I, I ghosted two. Well, actually, that goes to three because one of them was, you know, when you write when you write for a bodybuilder, it's like, you know, by, um, you know, Samir Banu. Well, no, it's not. You know, Samir had talked to the guy, but, yeah, you know, the guy. You interview him yeah. And then you, you put it together. The best was when I interviewed Sonny Schmidt. Mm-hmm. He didn't speak English. He's from New Zealand? 
he kind of spoke English. So they said, so they said, and he just, I want some big title. I said, we got to interview this guy. I said, give it to Gallagher. And, and so Jim writes it. He had a Southern accent. He said, be creative, Marty, be creative. I said, all right. So I had, I took the opposite approach. We called him the Samoan Spinoza. Mm. And we were quoting uh, all these great like leader principles that Sonny adhered to. Oh man, it was, it was, it was the most, it was the best. And he loved it. Sonny loved it. Oh yeah. You guys always made those guys look good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I had, I tell you, uh, I had, uh, I had major, major problems with uh, Nasser El Somebody. Yeah. What was that deal? He was a strange. Ca- well, there were quite a few of those pros oh, that were strange, but but he he was uh, Egyptian. Yeah. And um, uh, he anyway, I shouldn't get into all the specifics, but he um, he passed, you know. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of these, a lot of those guys, they're killing over, and uh, I think it's traceable to their their crazed drug habits. Well, I think a lot of it is, is, you know, they they go with the diuretics, they damage your kidneys, yeah. you know, and the uh, insulin, and the growth, and all that stuff that's great gut. How did yeah. uh, how did you get pulled into the uh, UFC? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, so uh, well, the UFC came on the scene, right? And it was like an underground. The first time I heard of it, you know, who was the the best for the UFC was Howard Stern. Howard. Okay. Howard Stern was the first guy to go, oh, you wouldn't believe it. This little tiny guy, he beat up everything. He's talking about Hoist Gracie. And through Howard Stern, everybody said, oh. So all of a sudden, sporadically, it would appear, and they were chasing it all over the country. I was writing for Milo on a regular basis. And Milo came out, I think, every three months. And I was writing for... um, Muscle and Fitness, but also all the Weeder magazines, Prime, Flex. There was a bunch of Weeder magazines. So this new UFC thing came on, and I liked it. Um, Jim, do you remember the original Joe Henry? The karate? Joe Henry? Yeah, no one bothered me. Nobody bothers me. Nobody bothers me either. Yeah, yeah. That was his first studio was in my neighborhood at Connecticut Avenue and University Boulevard, less than a mile from where I grew up, right? So I knew those. And he would, back then and in the 80s, they had karate points fighters, right? Yep. Yep. And they wouldn't actually hit each other. Right. So, and they were, oh, he's a world champion points fighter, this and that. And then those guys would come up to the little tavern in Wheaton and, and there was a street fighter named Wendell Powell, and you could bet as to whether or not you wanted to beat Wendell, but you had to put up 50 or 100 bucks. And he crushed these guys. And that's when I first realized, I said, you know what? Unless you experience getting smashed in the face, you really don't understand yeah. fighting. Then I, got invo- then I got involved with Chinese internal martial arts, right? And they're the same way after I've been with them for a while. I thought it was great movement. I thought it was great breath control. I thought it was great um, moving meditation. But in terms of a fighting form, no. And when they started saying, oh, we don't spar because our tactics are so deadly, you could kill 
you could kill the other guy. I can touch you in the temple and you'll yeah, I know. And I'm like, well, why don't you come on up to the little tavern and touch <laughs> one of the Right on the right? street. Right on the street. <laughs> oh, Wendell would cry. Uh, you know, and it was a little tavern. So when Corey and Gracie came out and he said, oh, this is these guys, they are all just BSers. They don't know how to fight. They're just all pretend. And you had all those weird, remember like Aikido? Yeah. Right? Everybody all these sparred, say they were the best. Oh, well, if no one spars, everyone's so UFC got found ah, out the best was. I picked up on that. I started writing articles for it for Milo and Muscle and Fitness. Corey and Gracie calls me up. He goes, oh, brother, you get it. He said, you come to Los Angeles. We need to dine. We need to break bread. I always regretted that I didn't follow up on that. Oh, God. I know. I know. Well, wait, I, you had a relationship with Coleman, though, didn't you? Well, that came, that yeah, that came later. Um, Mark came to us through Perillo. He was a huge Perillo performance supplement user. Yeah. And, I mean... Uh, when he was at his peak, I think John would send him like 200 pounds of supplements a month. He was, he was living on it, you said. Well, allegedly. I don't know that for a fact. That's something yeah. that John said. John said something to the effect, he must be living on it. Well, what I think might have uh, uh, You know what? Best not to say anything. Yeah. He's still around. Alongside of Mark. <laughs> He's still around. He's Let's just say Mark, Mark always... Mark loved Perillo. Mark talked yeah. in detail about Perillo. Mark yeah. was very specific about which supplements he used and yeah, why and when. Bad dude, man. He yeah, yeah. Dude. And, you know, he had that element of danger about him. It wasn't just a martial art, man. He had that pride, like, nobody's going to beat my ass. You know what I mean? I mean, he was... He, he was dangerous. He also... You know, he said... Um, you know, they banned his best weapon. The head smash. He we, he said he would pin each guy's wrist down and then smash their face repeatedly with his forehead. Yeah. And they banned that. And he said they took away my best move. I would have been ten times champion. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, Mark. So anyway, I got it. I got in good with uh, those people, and I support that. That's how you fighters fight. And uh, you know, it's like Tyson said: until you get smashed in the face, I mean, you don't, you know, you don't know nothing. Everybody's got a plan to get smashed in the face. I mean, uh, and and it, uh, that's fighters fight. I mean, this is not pretend. If it's if you don't if you don't spar, just dance, which might be a place for that. You know, if it's a health benefit thing, right? Uh, you know, I still use some shingy. Uh, it's a very kind of a vigorous thing, and I like kind of use it as a cardio thing. Mm-hmm. And the tai chi, that's uh, you're supposed to attain the meditational mindset and then put it into motion. I like that, but I'm not going to fight Mark Coleman, you know, with, uh, you know, fair ladies works at shuttles. <laughs> it's one of the 36 postures that's supposed to poke your eyes out. Yeah. Yeah. Where you at, JP? JP, did you, did you go to? Uh, I'm here. I'm here. I'm just, I'm just listening. Um, uh, let's talk about, you were going a little bit long here. Why don't, uh. You know, one of the most impressive things that I've heard you talk about is, and probably because I'm a manufacturer and a distributor of uh, fitness equipment, is the uh, the this kettlebell story with you and Pavel. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, here's another Forrest Gump moment. This is crazy. So when Pavel Sackerling first came to this, this country, he, he put 
first got his notoriety as a stretching and flexibility expert, uh, which I believe in. Uh, he had, I don't know, I guess you would call it, uh, uh, I'm paraphrasing, power stretching. Yeah, and he had a, yeah, relax into stretch. Yeah, you know. yep, 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 stuff like that. And, uh, you know, good, valid stuff. So he would, uh, got on a circuit where you travel around the country and put on seminars. When he would come to Washington, D.C., he would shoot up. I'm 70 miles north of D.C. So he'd shoot up and stay a day or two because, you know, we got to. But how did you guys meet? How did you know each other? Well, uh, actually, it was uh, Judd Biasato at Powerlifting USA did an article on Pavel. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think Judd approached me on Pavel's behalf. Pavel had read my stuff. Mm. And I said, sure, I love this idea of you know, dynamic stretching for improving strength or strength improves stretching or whatever. <clears throat> so that's that's how we uh, hooked up. And I think we did some articles. I think we did. Did we do a muscle and fitness article? I think we might have. I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure. But we we conversed a lot. Right. In the purposeful primitive, he calls me his mentor. Mm. Right. So anyway, get back to the story. So he when he would come to D.C. on a periodic basis to put on a stretching seminar, he'd come up to my house up here in the country and he'd stay. And, you know, we'd uh, go to the woods and, you know, lift in the garage. And then at night we'd, you know, eat steak and drink wine in the deck. And we were on the deck one night drinking wine. And I said, what's your master of sport in? Because he had a master of sport from the old Soviet Union, and they didn't just give those things out. I mean, that's tough. Uh, powerlifting, I think, Jimmy, you'd probably have to do the total of 2,000 at 242. Yeah, you have to be elite, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's tough. So, hold on just a moment. Take a sip here. <laughs> Brought to you by Guinness today. <laughs> All right, so... Um, so Pavel came and we're on the deck, and I said, well, what, what do you have to do? What's your thing? He says, it's kettlebells. And so, you know, he started talking about, like, pods, P-O-D-S, pods. I think and, it's pood, which is yeah, the yeah, weight. Yeah, yeah, weight. It's the weight, right? Oh, yeah. you got to do this. What's that in America? Oh, you got to do 54 pounds, and you have to do this movement for this many reps and that many this and that. And, you know, a whole thing and you go through. And if you do that with this poundage at, at that body weight, and they had different body weight divisions, you get master sport. I said, well, that's interesting. I said, you should do an article on that for uh, Americans. He goes, no. He said, Americans would never be interested in kettlebells. They are too brutal and too rugged and rough, and no, not for Americans. Yeah, and at that point, there was no kettlebells here. They were all probably just in Russia. The dumbbell. Go ahead. So I said, I said, well, I think you're wrong. And I said, I'll tell you what. I said, if you write an article, I'll edit it, and then we'll send it to Randy Strassen at Milo, and then I guarantee he'll publish it. He goes, oh, okay. So we did that. He wrote the article, put it to me, sent it over to Randy, and Randy published it. It was called, I don't know, Pickle Juice. It had some crazy title, Pickle yep. Juice, Kettlebells, and something. And vodka. And, yeah, vodka. <laughs> and and that article, the response to that article was so strong that that convinced John Duquesne to partner up with Pavel and come up with the money 
to fund the kettlebell thing. Right? So the whole kettlebell revolution happened on Marty's deck. There's yeah. a there's a, uh, a Forrest Cup moment that for you. Right? For sure. <laughs> Isn't that something? So, so yeah, Pavel teams up with John Duquesne of Dragon Door. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they start bringing uh, kettlebells in and kettlebell. No, no, no. They, managed, they, they had it. They had it. that For that first beautiful, glorious period, they were the only game in town. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when they, that's when they were making bank. They, all the kettlebells were those, uh, the Dragon Door kettlebells. And they, man, they were pew. Yeah. Well, and they had the, the first certification courses and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got all that was that was big. Of course, they're everywhere now. There's all sorts of different certifications and and everything. But uh, yeah, that's um, that's something. Yeah, you've told yeah, me that and, story and, before. And, and again, and just just to finish things out here, and that uh, at the at the end of the decade, I relocated. Oh, I went to work for the Washington Post, yeah, and uh, I ended up. My boss was a guy named Vic Sussman. He brought me in. Vic was an internet guru. And he bought the internet to the Washington Post. This guy, they, this guy would like fly to Singapore and talk to some bunch of corporations in an after-dinner speech and make like twenty-five grand, mm-hmm. yeah. right, for a forty-five-minute speech. So this is the guy that the Washington Post has set up our internet. So when they set up the internet, they wanted a fitness guy. So they asked me. I ended up doing two hundred and thirty weekly and bi-weekly online columns for the I remember, I remember that. Man, I was, we were rolling heavy, man. Uh, and then Vic, Vic got in a big, pissy match with management. He stuck a damn whole fish in the heating vent when he quit. What? And, <laughs> and so that thing went off, that dead fish went off for, I don't know, they had to rip the whole wall. <laughs> they never found it. Thing. Well, they found it. I mean, they had to like go in and rip a bunch of walls out and stuff to get to it. But that was Vic. Well, and then uh, he killed over a heart attack at a young age. For, for the Washington Post, though, you were on there answering like you had the column and everything, but you were on there answering people's questions, lifting yeah. questions, oh, we, nutrition. We, yeah, questions. we'd post. We'd, we'd post. A, we'd, uh, we'd post an article or a column. We post a column, to, and uh, then people would. Uh, we'd, I'd go live online once a week. Uh, I think it was like when Tuesday at twelve, twelve to one. And typically, I'd answer uh, fifteen to twenty-five questions, like you know, yeah. just just pull right out. And we need to do that. Right yeah, we can do that. I have that. We ability. need to do that on on video or something. Go live on Facebook and take people's questions. You enjoy a lot of the answer, A lot of the answers is squat. Oh, my car broke. <laughs> Just get a better squat. Oh, my wife left me. Oh, get a better squat. A lot of that stuff uh, is on the internet too. Still, from and when was that? It was. Um, oh, that was many years ago. Late nineties uh, or something. Early. So anyway, but, but that allowed me. Now, now I um, full time, and I have been a full time professional writer. But but I was able to move to the country. Stacy and I moved to the country. Um, you know, beautiful, hundred. Yeah, I've been there. It's nice. House, 11, 11 foot ceilings, all that. And, you know, to the house that we wanted in a quiet, quiet location. No one locks their doors. No crime. Beautiful. I'm next to a, live next to a 150 acre farm. And, you know, this is just the groove that we've been in for the last 21 years, just kind of pursuing the fitness Dow, right? Yeah. 
focused writing books. I've got five or six books that I've written since I've been up here, still cranking out the articles, 50 plus a year, more yeah. than that. Yeah, more and, uh, Jim. yeah, and again, uh, we're just, you know, and, and we're, we're doing the Lord's work, uh, renovating the locals. You know, that's mm-hmm. the thing. My, my, I keep in touch with the coaching. <clears throat> if you don't coach, you're not a coach. You got to take your methods. You got to get regular people, real people. You got to use them and see if they get results. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's where the rubber meets the road. Not not pontificating about it, theorizing about it, uh, speculating about it. Uh, there's no report card. Where's the report card? Let's show us the renovated results. Show us the the, the radically transformed humans. That's what we want to see. That's well, the report card. That's well, what's missing today. Yeah. There's and no a lot report of that, card. Everybody a lot of that has been uh, good content over the years for, uh, you know, articles and different things, different things that you do for us, you know, talking yeah. about what you're having these guys do and, you know, discoveries over the years of different, uh, you know, lifting. Um, well, I thought it was neat, this next one that's coming up on the central nervous system. So we'll have that. Yeah. Uh, we should probably do a podcast on that one because it's real yeah, interesting. Should, oh, also, I want to. Um, I'm in touch with Ed Cohn, so I think we'll we'll bring Ed Cohn on for a podcast. Either yeah, on that would be great. Either on personalities or training. I really would like to drill down with him in the training because his training and my training is kind of lost today, and nothing's ever trumped it. So it needs to be like resurrected and spotlighted and and i would like to do that yeah and then you guys have something coming up it's a workshop february 29th in gaithersburg at crossfit concepts talk about that for a second well speaking about drilling down uh we're, we're 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 concentrating on the bench press and the overhead press and there's five variations of each of these lifts we're going to walk through from the the they they go they're sequential the core technique lays the the groundwork for its successor. You know, each technique builds atop the other. For example, in the squat, the five variants, uh, the first variant is the no weight squat. Just being able to do uh, vertical shin, vertical torso, no weight, perfect squat for yeah, reps. Technique. The second variation is the kettlebell squat, or yeah, the goblet squat, right? right. Uh, third variation is the front squat. You shift your tools. You shift from the kettlebell to the barbell. Uh, fourth variation is the high barback squat, right? And only then do you get to do the low barback squat. You have to master the other four before you earn the right to do low barback squat. Yeah. If you jump in low barback squat, which is what everybody does, that's the invitation to just bend forward. You know, and that's exactly what we don't do. Uh, so th- this is the kind of, and that's just one example. We're going to uh, work the bench where we, we're going to talk about, Kirk's going to talk, well, oh, yes, it's going to be myself, <clears throat> Jim Steele, world champion Kirk Kowalski. Uh Kirk's going to drill down on championship technique, the Fantano technique that he learned from Ken, you know, uh, benching uh, the, the gentle arc inside the box, uh, you know, the, uh, the leg drive, the, you know, the, the elbow placement. It's just a sophisticated world of technique that we live in that people have not been exposed to. Uh, Jim, 
Yeah, man. It, it, well, my bench went 385 to 505. <laughs> well, uh, hey, by the way, I, I've seen you guys teach this technique to our military guys, and um, I implemented that in my bench. And I had quit benching, honestly, for like 10 years because it just tore up my shoulders. And I learned everything that you guys were teaching them, you know, keeping your elbows in, slight arch yep. in the back, feet firmly planted, all this all stuff. Right. Um I've been benching now solid for the past year and make a good making good gains and my shoulders, man, are feeling good. Yeah. Injury free and you know, full range of motion, pause, yeah. elbows. Because in. you're making you're making them stronger instead of ripping them apart with that what's that that flared elbow thing, Jim, that the bodybuilders do with the... shudder, man. It makes me shudder when I yeah, see yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Now I'll do that once in a while on a real light one to like a don't, you know, if I'm doing don't, uh, don't, strip sets don't, or something. Don't, don't, don't. Um, well, um, I know, um, I know. Let it, let it, let it go. Let I know it go. what That's, you're saying. You don't like let it that go, one. Baby. Yeah, you're still no, it's, it's, hurtful. It's, hurt, it's hurtful to you. It'll hurt you. But I'm telling you, uh, you know, anybody that goes to this seminar and learns that technique, you know, you're not only going to get stronger, you're going to have oh, that, muscle. That, you're going to preserve your joints, too. Oh, yeah, that's the whole game, man. It's uh, Strength is resilient. Strength is... Uh, longevity strength is longevity longevity and that's something we never think about when we're younger it's just poundage 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 size 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 you know but you you have to really have a conversation with yourself and go look i'm going to be old one day and all this muscle doesn't matter if my joints can't move and i'm crippled we're going to do you know we're going to do the overhead press and i've used the really successfully in rehab Mm -hmm. shoulders uh, I love it. Up and uh, yep, 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 yep. Yeah, making so this light, is full, this making, is full circle. Making, yeah. making, making light weights heavy. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's uh, been a miracle for people. And that is yeah. one of uh, making light weights heavy has one been one of the biggest things that's helped me because I'm telling you, man, it just uh, it's a safer way to lift. You're not going to screw your shoulders up. It enhances there, the intensity. There, 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 it, it here's recruits our, more our... muscle fiber. It takes all the, you know, it takes less strain off the, more strain off the joints and puts it onto the actual muscle itself. Dare to be weak. Yeah. But like I'm saying, you never see anybody doing this. So if you're in the Gaithersburg area, somewhere around there, get out about... and check this out. It's cheap, too. It's cheap. It's, it's like, what, 125 bucks or something? I don't know. It might be. Yeah, and, I hope it's a little more than that. And whoever, it doesn't matter if you're an advanced <laughs> or you're it's your first beginner. Yeah, it doesn't matter, man. No, because because the techniques for the uh, the advanced elite world champion and the beginner are the same. Yeah, and, and yeah. people have a black have a lot of fun too, man. And it's and great. you're learning this from champions. It's not hearsay. It's not some guy that got a certification somewhere. This is guys that have done it and teach the best in the world. Yeah, my boys, all my boys show up. So the t- the pupil to teacher ratio is great because yeah. you know some of my guys have been with me for ten years now. You know, mm-hmm. they they can they can explain it better than me, and they're not as grumpy. <laughs> Forrest Grump. All right. Yeah, Anything you else what? you want to say here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good, I finished a book. Yeah. Oh. What book? We're supposed to do one book. Huh? We're supposed to talk about one book each week. Oh, yeah. Well, what do you got? 
I just finished Killing Pablo by Bowden. Uh, uh, I, read that. I read that a long time ago. That's know, a good dude, one. But I just finished Narco, so I had to get it really good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then That's a new a book. Uh, I told about this one last night, but Deer Camp, I'm still finishing that one. Um, so two good that books. Sounds, that good. sounds gruesome. Sounds Deer, Deer Camp sounds gruesome. No, that's good. It's not a horror book or nothing. That's good. It's about this, the whole family of Deer Camp. Okay. All right. Well, again, go ahead. What are you reading? Oh, uh, you know, this is crazy. I'm rereading the two books that I just read. So, I know. I know just well, like you miss stuff. You, the first time you do miss stuff. And as a writer, as a, as a pro, I, I, I read the... Um, Oh, the Stalingrad book, Enemy at the yeah. Gate, which was fantastic. And I read that through and I said, that's the best book on Stalingrad I've ever read. So I put that aside. And and then the uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest book came in, you know, Bust All Holy. I had somebody email me about what was the name. Uh, Bust Loose All Hell. Bust Loose Hell. Something about hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But bust, you got to bust, bust open all hell, I think. Uh, but, and that, that was incredible. I mean, again, this is the American samurai. Uh, killed hand-to-hand combat, killed 31 guys, had 30 horses shot at from underneath him, never defeated in battle. Uh, Ed, uh, Erwin Rommel and all the Prussians are studying his cavalry tactics. And the guy was like uh, illiterate. Uh, well, not really. Uh, just great. So I finished the one, and then I finished the other, and I was like, man, I want to go back and reread the first one, but I want to yellow line it. So yeah. now I'm going through on I'm yellow line it, because both guys are very good writers, uh, but the stories, it's, it's very interesting how they uh, unfold the stories. As far as movies go, I saw this weird movie. Jimmy, what's our that young English actor we like, Tom? Hardy. You watched Legend, didn't you? Yes, I did. With yes. Too. I did this week. That was yeah. good. It was well, good. He he plays the the twin brothers. It's the yeah. same guy. Brothers, the Cray brothers. Yeah, the Crays, which were honest to God gangsters. Yeah. But I love the way he played the larger glasses gay brother. Yes. yes. He, he's a psychopath. He's a patriot too, man. I mean, he loves his country. He loves. Guns and hunting and everything else too. I love that guy. Well, anyway, that that was a movie that that got me, and I said, "Well, that, that that's pretty good. I like that." Also, now if any of you people haven't seen it, I would urge you to uh, get the uh, Netflix movie on Jocko, which is about Jocko Pastoris, the great jazz bass player. Jimmy, I know when I talk about jazz, it's like uh, you know, getting the tooth drilled. Yeah, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I understand. You know, anyway, but if if you haven't seen it yet, this uh, the guy was the the virtuoso genius of the you know the twentieth century, redefined how to play the bass. And if if that's that's the movie, if you haven't seen, I would I would pull up. Even if you don't particularly care for jazz, it's an interesting life story. The kid came from nothing, ends up beat to death in a bar. Jeez, oh, man. Oh, yeah, even if you don't particularly care for the music, the story alone, I mean, this kid came, and he was a, kind of an idiot savant. Yeah. But, but right up there with, like, like like Hendrix and Coltrane, and I mean, he was that uh, profound. 
in not only his bass playing, but his music. And it's just a wild story. He lost his mind in drugs. Uh, had scenes like we were in Tokyo playing with Weather Report, and he drove into the lobby of a hotel on a motorcycle, crashed into a wall by the elevators, fell over unconscious, and then a, a live tuna came out from underneath his shirt. Sounds like a name PG County or something. <laughs> Come on, man. A live tuna? Yeah. In Japan, after he rode the motorcycle into the lobby, the Japanese are like, we don't understand you Americans. We never, we never have. So anyway, if you get a chance to see that, that scene is not in the Jocko movie, but there's plenty of other crazy ones to make it up. Now, Jimmy, you're like uh, when the French guy comes into Ricky Bobby's bar and puts on the Charlie Parker on the jukebox. Yeah. And he goes, what in the hell is that? No, yeah. seriously, seriously, what is that? And we don't allow jazz or the Pet Shop Boys on that jukebox. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, maybe Jocko's not for you. Okay. All right. <laughs> But it is a good, he's one of us. So anyway, all right. Well, that's all I have. That's all I got. Well, that's all I got. I'm not retired life of leisures like you guys. So uh, my uh, my schedule is a little tight. Although uh, I oh, did get, some get, a, barbecue, get some barbecue in Texas, brother. I did, yeah, I did get a recommendation for a book from uh, Bubbles, the chiropractor. And I called Bubbles up the other day and I said, you know, I got some issues with my back and some <laughs> some some nerve pain. He goes, you got to get. Yeah, he says you got to get this book by Stuart McGill. It's called Back Mechanic. Yeah, it is good. It is good. So I'm going to read this on the plane and uh, start reading this because I guess he's got uh, one that's even better that really breaks it down for the layman. Uh, just came out. It's almost like a workbook kind of thing. Really good. What's it called? You know? No, nah, I don't know off the top of my hand. It's oh, his latest one. Latest by, one by Stu. Yeah. yeah. You know how to you know how to fix your back? Squat. Yeah. Thank you, Jimmy. Get a bigger squat. Get a bigger squat. <laughs> All right. Listen, All right. It's, t- it's time to bail. Uh, in the meantime, you can check out Marty's weekly column, Raw with Marty yeah. Gallagher, at ironcompany.com. Also, pick up Marty's books, Purposeful Primitive and Strong Medicine at Iron Company. By the way, for the Bench and Overhead Press seminar, um, we just posted um, – uh, the sign-up link on Facebook, our, our Facebook page for Iron Company. If you want to go there, click that link, and you can go there and sign up. That's coming up um, February, what was it, February uh, last, 29th? Last Saturday in February. Yeah, February 29th, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., so it's an all-day thing. Uh, you can also visit Iron Company for all your gym equipment and flooring needs. We've got everything you need. And uh, finally, Jim Steele articles can be also found in our article section at Iron Company. He puts out one a month for us. What do you got hanging? What's the latest? That was uh, over 40 lifting, like for, you know, when you're done competing and stuff. Right, right. Yeah. How to kind of adapt to your your age and your injuries and things like that. And different ways to work around stuff. Find new motivations. We got to figure out. We got to figure out one for uh, February, Jim. Okay. I don't think we talked about it, so we'll start thinking about that. Let's see. Right. You should do one on. You know what you should do one on, Jim? What's that? Training kids. Yeah, didn't I do that already? I don't know, man. But that would be a good one. Like, yes, we don't. Yeah, we had to do one of those. Yep. Or, or all right, well then do uh, ongoing. I mean, or you train know. the high school athlete. Yeah, yeah, yeah something like that. Uh, kid training is important. Yeah. 
and uh, they're not they're not getting they're not getting what they yeah. need. You know, I don't, I, I, I don't I don't mean to stretch it. I just want to say this one last thing. You know what the rage is out there now? They've got them doing a kid who could not do a hundred and fifty pound legitimate below parallel squat. They've got them like box squatting four hundred. Yeah, so stupid. In high school, their spine, their spines are bending like fishing rods. And I'm like looking at so I'm going like, oh my God, my head is going to explode. And I said, yeah, that's that's the latest rage. Yeah, and yeah. they, they kind of go down to a three quarter position and they sit on the bench. Your spine's bending oh. because they can handle yeah. all this weight. And they've got like like two kids spotters on each side know, that are like spaced out. They're not even paying attention. If anything happened, that kid's going down. I'm I'm like going, what? This is insane. No, right? that's horrible. Their the, the joints and everything, you know, their tendons, oh, everything's not ready oh. for that. Nothing is. And again, I could could stop that kid dead in his tracks with 135. Yeah. Absolutely. And and he'd be the better for it. So anyway, I don't need to get off my house. I'm sorry, it needed to be said. But but do that. Do do something on on kids. Yeah. And you're on top of that. Well, anyway, that's pretty much it for uh, Forrest Gump of Strength. I mean, look, that's part six. That's all you get. Like I said in the beginning, we could go on and on and on. You have you have so many run-ins and done so many things, but uh, it's like okay, part six. How far do we go? You know, so we'll yeah. cut it off right there. Um, right. I want to get into maybe like the central nervous system and and um, you know rest and recovery and and stuff like that because you have a, a good article coming out on that. I thought it was very interesting. So maybe we'll is, that the, is that the relationship between the central nervous system and barbecue? It can be. Absolutely. Everything's related. You have to, to feed a central <laughs> nervous squats. system, right? Well, you know what? Barbecue and squats. <laughs> and and some kind know. of alcohol. Well, All right. Good. All right, All right guys. Talk to I'll you next time. Bye. <laughs>